Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to episode 65 of the Asian Cinema Film Club. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me, of course, is my co-host, the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hi, everybody. Tonight we have not one, but two films, as we say. You Can't See Us and Pull a John Cena, as we look at two offerings from Japan in the Invisible Man genre, as we check out The Invisible Man Appears from 1949, and its follow-up, The Invisible Man vs. Human Fly from 1957. But before we obviously get into that, it's time to ask what you've been watching. And Stephen, what has been holding your interest since the last episode? So I've got three things, two of which are peripheral <laughs> to to our our um our um our mission. Um, so I'll start off with a, a there's a new American TV show um called Kung Fu, which is apparently a reboot of the old kung fu and kung fu the legend continues tv shows of my youth starring not very chinese david carradine obviously this doesn't star him being as he uh, yeah let's not go there um so it's on, so it's on the cw network that probably tells you all you need to know <laughs> Um, but basically stars lots of young pretty things expositing to each other while um some pretty decent choreographed martial arts goes on if that if that's fair to say they're obviously not touching each other not going through it but yeah sort of set in the modern day young girl um who's it played by what's her name uh um olivia liang um who i don't know don't know if it's her first role or she's come from somewhere basically she's a she was a harvard student went off for a have a little visit in China and found out that her mother was trying to get her married off. So she went off as you do when you're pissed off with your mum and you join a Shaolin um, temple and you learn martial arts for three years. And then shit goes down and she has to come back to Chinatown, modern day San Francisco. And at the end of the first episode, we're reintroduced to her crazy family and some friends and some triad stuff going down. Um, I, it looks like I've watched the first episode. It seems fine. Um, it was just I was just interested in it because and I I remember Kung Fu was one of the shows I remember watched. That and the Hulk, basically people who wander around America and then get into fights. Both those shows were very similar to me. One was using martial arts and one was turning into the Hulk. But yeah, there was just this whole <laughs> era it's, of shows like that. Um, yeah, it's this the wandering. Wonder, isn't it? It, it? it is. Um, obviously, there was the, the Kung Fu Legend Continues, which is more of a police drama, also set in San Francisco. So I do wonder if there is going to be. A, I think it was San Francisco, but I do wonder if there's going to be a something more with Kwai Chang Kane. But we shall see. Probably turn out that one of the characters is related to him or something. But um, well, yeah, it's it's all right. It was originally a Bruce Lee project. 
It was, yes. Um, and they basically they gave it to uh, Carradine, and in turn, they've recently used his um, original idea to form Warrior, which was on Showtime, but I think it's moved to HBO Max now. Um, mm. About the uh, the Warring Tong clans, which. And there was also there was also another spin-off or another reboot which was planned, which was going to star Brandon Lee. Um, so yeah, <laughs> the Lee the Lee family really haven't didn't, didn't get much of a look in on that one, unfortunately for various different reasons. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll be keeping an eye on it. I'm not expecting too much to come out of it. You know, there's already a magical sword. You know, it seems very quest based and yeah, but. It, it, you know, the, it, it, it was fine. Um, if you're into your sort of CW, um, DC shows, then you you might get a kick out of it for just having something without people in costumes. Anyway, so that's the first thing. Um, second one is a bit more complicated, whether it does belong on the show or not. Is but I caught Minari. Um, which although it's very much an American film, it's got very much a South Korean director and um, a mix of American and very South Korean cast. Um, so it's up for up for Best Picture and Best Director and stuff at the Oscars this year. Um, basically tells the story of a man um, called Jacob, played by Stephen Yeun, who people will know from The Walking Dead. Um who takes his family from California. This is back in the... Oh, I can't remember where it's based. Um, in the 80s. Takes his family from California to Arkansas to basically start a farm. Um, this, this is this is, this is is stupid <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> Most, mostly that he doesn't know anything about running a farm. He's a chicken sexer. That's what his job is. That's what he's doing in California. And they were making decent buck there. But he wants he wants more for his, from his life than that. So he brings his family, his wife, and um, two young children. And it's really the story of the youngest child who... This is, this is kind of a... A pseudo-autobiography of um, the director, Lee Isaac Chung, but... You know, just based on some ideas and things that he had as a child, rather than a, a beat for beat um, retelling of his of his of his life. Um, the it, does, it starts badly. You know, he, he doesn't really know what he's doing. Arkansas is um, the weather's not like California, that's for sure. <laughs> and uh, they have some problems. Um, it, that exposes some gaps in the marriage between him and his wife who is played by um, Han Yu Ri, who's a fairly popular South Korean actress, um, who sort of compromises with him rather than just leave him or force him to go back home after an initial uh, issue caused by a flood, that she'll bring her mother over from South Korea, played by the magnificent Yoon Yoo Jung, um, who's always, you know, she's a powerhouse of um, Korean acting. she, how will people know her from the housemaid? People will know her from oh crikey, um, boomerang family. I've actually met her. Um, makes her the only best supporting actress nominee I've ever met. Um, and that and that's not a big one, but yeah, she she's uh, oh she's also in the fantastic mockumentary actresses as well. But yeah, she's a she's an elder statesman of um of South Korean acting, both TV and um 
uh, what's it called, um, and film, um, and she's she's fantastic in it. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's a bit low key. I don't know if in an, in another year it would have um it'd have had quite the same Oscar vibes. Although I was on a podcast back late early uh, late 2019 early 2020 whenever Sundance happened and somebody on that podcast said this film is going to be Stephen Ewan's going to be up for an Oscar so he was right um the fella from that that podcast but um yeah it's really good really good really entertaining um a lot of the lot of it's in Korean um it's got quite a lot of sort of Korean uh mythology and ways of social social stuff going on um the best thing about it is oh a south korean family have gone to arkansas this is going to be a story about race no it's not it's a it's a story about a family just struggling in in a difficult place and um and it's a story about marriage and it's a story about the the, the immigrant story in america really 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 good um and i really hope you wins the best supporting actress what do you think its chances of uh, picking up best film? Because obviously it's up against Promising Young Woman, which is uh, currently a favourite of certain members yeah. of our production team. <laughs> yeah, it's also a favourite of um, of the uh, league. Um, the other podcast I do work for, they bloody love that film. Um, my why. Pers- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my personal favourite is uh, Sound of Metal. Okay. I watched, that, I watched that the other night, and that is, for me, just fantastic Reese Ahmed is astonishing and the sound design in it is amazing um and it I felt touched by it and again you know in another year would it have had would it have been up there a best picture I don't I don't know um so it's a lot of it a lot of good indie stuff um I hope it's not mank um I haven't watched the um the one with Mads Mikkelsen the Danish film yet but I've got I've got that to watch which I've got high hopes for um, so I, I think I think Yuma will win Best Supporting Actress. I mean, she's just she holds the film together. Um, I don't know what's going to win. I think Promising Young Woman might have a chance because um, so many people have talked about it so highly, and the only issue people have with that film is the ending, which either you love or you hate, and that that's all right. Um, but for me, the film of the, of that selection that I have seen, I've seen. Um, Oh, what's the one? Aaron Sorkin one. Uh, Trial of the Chicago 7. Okay. Which I thought was fine for a TV movie. <laughs> no, no, and that's not to put it down. You know, it's brilliantly written, amazingly acted, but it's not really a film. Right. It's, you know, and, and uh, funnily enough, there was already a TV movie of it. And, and I think... But it might resonate a lot more in America, where the event that it's based on—that that it's based, not just based on—it basically replays beat for beat. Um, may have more resonance over there. Um, to us, some, I don't know, 40, 50 years, 60 years from the events it was portraying, and a continent away, it just seems a bit ridiculous. <laughs> but for them, it was real. Um, so yeah, and. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think Minari's going to win. Um, I think I said on the League podcast I was going to give it to uh, the, the Danish film just because, just to, just, just to be random. But um, now I've seen Sound of Metal. That, that's my favourite. It won't win, but I hope Riz Ahmed maybe gets the best actor nod. But then they'll probably give it to Gary Oldman or um, the other fella. Anthony Hopkins, won't they? Because that's what they do. 
<laughs> yeah, anyway. Stephen Yeun's made certainly a number of interesting choices since leaving The Walking Dead, which is always in, always great to see when an actor of untapped talent leaves a, a comfy position to go and sort of take his chances out there in the big bad world. I mean, there's very few actors who make are able to make that leap from the small screen to the big screen successfully. I mean, you obviously got George Clooney, you got Bruce Willis, who both made that leap, and now obviously Stephen Yeun has done um followed a similar path to Jason um Gordon Joseph Lewis in the fact that he's just become this absolute indie darling. I mean in things such as like Sorry to Bother You and Mayhem and obviously now in uh in this in this this film. So Yeah. He's no, just making he, very um, interesting choices. He has. I, I, I'm surprised he's up for best actor in this film, I've got to be honest with you. Um it's 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 a fine indie film performance, yeah. Um he but when I walked away from that film, his wasn't the performance I remembered. Um, the, 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 it was it was the it was the grandmother and actually his wife, the lady who plays his wife. Actually, <laughs> I would say uh, are, are stronger performances. Obviously, there's a couple of cute kids in there as well. But it's a really strong story. Um, I think if it had been his story and that he'd written it, um, uh, then maybe that might have been more. Oh, he's also fantastic in Burning, which is a film I talked about a few weeks ago. Or a few episodes ago now, um, which is you know, which is a South Korean film. His South Korean is pitch perfect, by the way. Um, okay, uh, he was born in South Korea, but I think he moved to America quite early in his life. Um, so yeah, he's um, he's really interesting. Yeah, and, and you're right. You know, Burning's a, is an indie is a is a Korean indie darling film. You know, um, Lee Chang Dong, who um, directed Bum Peppermint Candy, and so. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll stop saying yeah and just say <laughs> if you can catch it, um, it, it's worth a rent. Um, finally, <laughs> I've actually watched something that is properly South Korean this month, um, or this week. Um, I caught a copy of the Samjin Company English Class, which is a really clumsy, um, title for which I'm not quite sure. Yeah, that that's a yeah, the the Korean title just is equally as horrible. Um, so it's a South Korean comedy drama directed by someone called Lee Jong Pil, who who I'm not aware of. Um, basically, set in mid '90s South Korea, so South Korea on the on the on the edge of that, well, on on the edge, right in the midst of its of its reintegration into into the world so after the 1988 olympics after um the sort of the dictatorship got blown down there's this economic revival in south korea um and that's why we've all got lg televisions and hyundai cars and kia cars and samsung phones you know this is this all comes from this this period of time um but it was a very accelerated thrust into the 20th century for south korea really um and uh it it, it it's got a sort of nice there's, there's a couple of things going on here there's a sort of really nice um demonstration of what south korean work culture is like so if you think about all the times we've seen like japanese work culture and salary men and people working themselves to the bone that times a hundred that's what we're talking about it's also of course it remains to be a confucian society so there is you know there's a real hierarchies going on which the film is at pains to address is 
a lot based along gender lines, although not always. It, 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 it's fair enough to say there are some powerful women there, but on the whole, it's about it's about men. Um, there's a three story basically of, of three of the women that work there um, who uh, that not only have full time jobs, but they also basically have to act as coffee makers and lunch makers and secretaries to all the men around them as well as doing a full-time job they have to wear these funny uniforms and and and, and, and yeah they're the cleaners as well they sort of they're the lifeblood of the company really um and of course it's about these companies um the samjin company is, is these family companies these we see it a lot in south korean films and in south korean um tv shows where the, the, the these big companies like samsung you know that they're they're a family company. They're they're handed down through family lines. Um, so it's, it's so it's a bit of a comedy drama about that. But then what happens is one of the characters played by um, Go Ah Sung, and you'll know Go from she was the little girl in The Host, yeah, and she was the young girl in Snowpiercer, and she was also in um, a fantastic horror movie called office and a british indie film called duet so she's she's like one of these she's she's a really great modern actress and, and she's got a really good supporting co- cast around her um but basically she, her character finds out that the company may be involved in some environmental disasters welcome to the 90s it's like erin brockovich but in south korea <laughs> except it's not because there's a whole gang of them um at the same time, they're all being taught, told to learn English, and the only way you can get promotions by learning English. So there's this there's this investigation that's going on in a sort of a comedy kind of way, with this very serious, very very serious undertones. A like classic Korean. How many different um, tones can we have going on in the same sentence? Sometimes, um, fairly amusing, really well acted. Um, I really really enjoyed it. Um, it isn't isn't gonna be a classic for all time I, I i don't know if it'll ever get a release over here but if you do magically manage to uh, find a copy of it i'd really recommend if nothing else just to see some good work by go our sung and um some lovely reimagining of mid 90s which is you now we've had a lot of films i think i talked about go go 70s didn't i a few months ago which sort of reimagined sort of south korea in the 70s um which was which was a South Korea very much still under sort of American rule. Um, we watched Peppermint Candy, which obviously went through the, the sort of the sixties, the seventies, and the eighties. And just to see sort of the nineties displayed was was quite interesting from a sort of sociological and historical point of view. Anyway, that's me. I've watched a lot. What about you? <laughs> um, got a few bits and pieces here. Some of it's not going to make sense in sort of like why I'm including it on the Nation Simmer podcast, but uh, I think you get a kick out of it. So uh, kicking off this month of, uh, sorry, this episode of viewings, uh, we got the challenge from 1982, um, which is, again, Western film directed by John Frankenheimer, um, starring Scott Glenn as a boxer hired to transport a sword to Japan, uh, only to find himself caught up in a blood feud between the two brothers who want to claim ownership for it. Uh, one following the traditional path of the samurai, and the other a sort of kind of corrupt businessman. But uh, basically, he finds himself uh, caught in the middle of them while undertaking samurai trading, trading from the you know, the honourable brother, so to speak, while also being involved with uh, his daughter as well. Um, 
The reason I include it is just purely because if you like The Last Samurai, this is very much the same, uh, only with Scott Glenn doing his sort of young Broly brawn thing. Uh, but it does saw uh, Toshiro Mifune in it as well, and there's just some really great uh, ninja fun in there, and just general... It's a very westernized look at samurai training, it has to be said, but you know, it's, it's a fun bit of escapism and a film I remember seeing like as a kid, just because there's a really great showdown in uh, an office block, um, including a really great dispatch of, a, of the main bad guy with a rather tasty looking skull splitter. Um, so that's out there for you to go and hunt down, you can watch it on Amazon. It's still pretty easy to get hold of. Because um, the new Suicide Squad trailer came out, and it start, we got to, all got to see Starro, which I'm sure Stephen was excited about. I really was. I fucking love that. The, 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 thing, the thing I love about the DC Universe is its wackiness. And Zack Snyder, bless him, has drained the wackiness out of the DC universe. And James Gunn is just the man. So he's, you know, he's not only got Peacemaker in it, that's John Cena's character, who is one of the fucking stupidest, although it's originally a Charlton Comics character, but yeah, just, just that he exists in the DC universe at all is great. And there's a whole bunch of other silly characters that he's, he's bringing back. But then Starro, who I think was the first Justice League yep. villain. Yeah, which is he basically... Was. A, a starfish from outer space that takes over people's minds. Um, this is back it. in the time when Wonder Woman was also answering the phones. She can yeah. tear a tank in half, but you know she's a woman, so she's going to also answer the phone. But there's this, there's this glorious. So this is you know, obviously this is the second phase of DC, um, sort of in the sixties. Um, you know, in 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 maybe sort of contemporaneous with the Batman TV show and things like that, where. You know, people were smoking some stuff, mate. <laughs> and uh, and sort of between sort of the mid sixties, early sixties, and nineteen eighty six, the DC universe was very light hearted and full of crazy shit like that. Um, in nineteen eighty six, um, Alan Moore and Frank Miller decided to darken the world a little bit, and all power to them. But yeah, I'm really glad James Gunn is is using these nutso characters. Um, I mean, this isn't a Suicide Squad that I know in any way, shape or form, but I don't care. It looks hilarious. James Gunn just likes to pick up the most obscure characters and then make them everybody's favourites. He did it with yeah. Guardians of the Galaxy, and now he's done it with Suicide Squad. When you look at his picks, it's like, oh, we're going to have Weasel and Ratcatcher. And yeah. as you said, Peacemaker. And he's, and... He's, he's, I mean, to be fair, the, the Guardians of the Galaxy gang had already been chosen. You know, that was already a... A group that was together, but they made it work. You know that was Abnett and Lanning had 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 created this sort of second Guardians of the Galaxy, starring people like Drax the Destroyer and Gamora, and, and most excitingly Rocket Raccoon and Groot. But he made it real, and he's just taking that sense of. Have you seen um what's the other superhero film that he did, the indie one with Ellen Page oh, Super. or Elliot Elliot Page? And uh, yeah, I love Super as well. What I mean, he's, he's just, just going <laughs> around hitting people who are rich. <laughs> That's and, right. Um... Yeah. Ellen, from the well, office, Elliot Page, as it is now, I believe. Yeah, Elliot yeah. Page, he plays Bolty, the lymphomaniac psychic, yeah. um, who gets her head blown off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, but again, yeah, you know, that's one of his lead characters, and he doesn't care, he just kills her off. Uh, Rain yeah. Wilson, isn't it? He's the main guy. Um, yeah, I, I, I really love James Gunn, I really want him back to do, you know, Guardians 
three, but um, he is. He's doing uh, the Guardians Christmas yeah. special. Oh, and that as well. Yeah, but I, I really want to see. You know, where the DC universe has worked is J- James Wan's Aquaman, which had a touch of whimsy about it as well, and um, I kind of like the Harley Quinn movie, sort of. In a, it just didn't Dressed quite. by Kathy Yan, who uh, let's it not did. forget yeah. gave us Dead Pigs. Yes, indeed. Um, which um, I have to say I that I saw an article saying about how act you know directors like female directors are being like get picked up, and the fact that she chose to go from doing Dead Pigs to doing the Harley Quinn movie, and they were like so critical of it. Like she should just make like these artsy sort of indie movies instead of like no, she, taking a big project the the, the 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 problem with the harley quinn movies is that there's there's about two characters too many in it and it doesn't give certain characters enough time the problem with the harley quinn movie yeah. is that it's got um you got McGregor Margot, in it. oh well yeah the, so yeah all right we could do that we could do this all night but yeah the, the harley quinn movie has got two it's got margot robbie in it who's head and shoulders above everybody fucking else in the film period right so she she drowns everyone out that's got it's got um Ewan McGregor, who whether you like him as an actor or not, um no. doesn't know in this film whether he's playing it for laughs or for seriousness. And the black mask is a really dark bad guy from sort of modern Batman mythos that doesn't belong in that movie. Um who's the other character? Mr. Zaz is his sidekick, who's a fucking serial killer who doesn't belong in that movie. And then they don't give the Huntress enough time, that, and then they just have too many other characters. Um, all the while, you're just waiting for the next minute Margot Robbie's going to be on screen, because she's amazing. Um, but it's also, you know, the fight scenes, are, you know, the, it, it, there's a lot of sock, bam, whammo, Batman 66 about it as well, which is adorable. Um, and yeah, I, I, I like those lighter sides of the DC universe, and and I, I more of that, please. And I think that would be enough of a differentiator from Marvel, which is pretty dark as well, frankly. Okay. Anyway, yes, yeah, sorry, but I yeah, Starro, <laughs> Starro, who's a giant starfish, <laughs> um, giant alien mind controlling starfish. Come on, yeah. So, of course, this made me want to go and revisit Warning from Space from 1956, directed by Kojishima, in which a group of space starfish are sent to uh, to save the world, to save Earth uh, from one that were on a runaway planetoid known as Planet R. It's on a collision course with Earth. Um, the only problem is, because they are giant starfish, they panic everyone who sees them, so that they have to disguise themselves, one of them has to disguise himself as a human to try and give us a warning. Um, I watched this on Amazon Prime, and it's a pretty janky copy they got on there, so if you can find a nice copy, then um, I would recommend checking out for kind of like the B-movie frills, but other than the fact it's a movie with giant starfish in it, there's not a huge amount to really recommend there. Um, I also, because I've just recently started my personal uh, film school, I checked out The Thief of Baghdad from 1924. Again, you may be wondering why the hell we're talking about um, one of the early epics on this show, especially because it was directed by Raoul Walsh and um, stars Douglas Fairbanks, you know, giving us charisma at the wazoo. But um, the main reason to check this out is because it's got Anime Wong, who both myself and Stephen were both big fans of mm. um, and here she plays a handmaiden but 
At the same time, she's put opposite Juliana Johnston, who plays uh, the prince, the princess um, that Afif is trying to charm. And because Anime Wong is just so incredibly stunning, she just overshadows her every scene. She isn't. She's just your eyes just constantly drawn to her. But Anime Wong um, was originally the first Asian lead on a TV series. Unfortunately, the show that she uh, yeah, was exactly. on is now lost in the annals of time but uh yeah she yeah. had a did I really do a phenomenal dark, career did i do a dark tales on her if i You've didn't done several pieces on her now yeah i certainly did a piece for in their own league which is a sort of a, a potted history of her from the view of you know she was a real trailblazer i mean there's a lot of talk these days about sort of an anti-asian sentiment in in america well believe you me they used to fucking litigate that way when she was brought up and her Chinese people were second class citizens in every way shape and form and she you know she she became an international superstar um uh, dressing like the flapper you know that that mm. Louise Brooks kind of look she was you know she was on the front of magazines what she did people cared you know people followed her every um her every movement um, she was detested by Chinese people in China, mainland China because she was felt to be a bit of a, a race traitor, but then she sort of reconciled that. Like you say, later in life, she... Um, was it like a mystery show or something? Where she yeah, was The Gallery of Madame Lu Toussaint. Yeah. I mean, there, were, um, there weren't many episodes of it, but, you know, she she is, you know, you can't take away where she started. Um, and then she was forgotten about for years. And then there's been a sort of a more recent... Um, resurrection of her of her as a, as a, as a great star you know, of of the silent era um bfi put out um piccadilly again i think i might have talked about it very early episode of this podcast which is um she had basically had a second career after after her hollywood career in in british movies um piccadilly fantastic um movie uh i think it's about to come out on blu-ray actually i'm sure david brooks was talking about it in the facebook group or maybe I was just talking to him directly. Um, I know, because I, I posted it randomly in the Facebook group, because as I saw, I saw people back down, and I was just like, who is this actress? It's just like your yeah. eyes constantly drawn to it. And then obviously yourself and David both got very excited about the fact we had an excuse <laughs> to talk about anime Wong, so... I mean, yeah, she's... Um, she, she's um, we we must... The, the problem is, is that most of her work has been lost, Um or it's in silent movies. Um, she's in the Lady from Shanghai. That's probably the, that's probably the main talkie we could get hold of. But it's very much a, a forties Hollywood film. Um, uh, is that is that the one with Marlena Dietrich? I can't remember. But she's just amazing, and no one else looked like her in cinema at the time. There are, you know, she, there are other Asian superstars of the time. There's a couple of guys. Um, again, maybe I should resurrect the old dark tales to talk about a few of those guys. But, um, you know, it wasn't all people dressing up like Charlie Chan and yellow face. There were, there were more actors of Asian origin than, than we might think of at that time. But yeah, terrible stuff going on in the background. But yeah, I, so she's in the thief of Baghdad. It's, um, it's not the fella from black Narcissus. Um, Sabu, is he not in that as well? I think he is. Yes. 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 I was listening to someone talk about that the other day. Another one of my favourite films. I need, I haven't watched The Thief of Baghdad for years. It used to be the sort of what used to be the sort of film that was on on 
wet Sunday afternoons. <laughs> it's there's a, there's different versions out there. I mean, this is a, this was the twenty three version. I want to say um, because. The last time I did I did any sort of film studies was way back in like two thousand and two when I was in college, and then everything after that has just been just sort of my own sporadic sort of learning. So I do, recently started this self-imposed film school, and part of it is you you start like with the Luminaire Brothers, so I did a trip to the moon, and then it was like onto the early epics, which I did uh, a few for Baghdad, and then I followed it with um, the General with Buster Keaton. Oh yes. I saw that at the BFI a few years ago. You know when we could go back to the cinema, mate? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I love a bit of Buster Keaton. Um, yeah, I always put so Buster is this Keaton. The, so, is this, so is this the 1924 Thief of Baghdad? Or the yeah, this will be 24. So this will be the very Douglas, first one. This is Douglas, Douglas Fairbanks. Fairbanks right. Who, as I said, he's... Douglas Fairbanks has got charisma at the wazoo in this movie as he just like postures and grins a lot and has the sort of physique which looks like he's been carved out of wood and probably only tame <laughs> for eating meat products and doing tumble on the stony ground. Um, yeah, but so yeah, Sabu so... would have been in the 1940s one, I'm pretty certain, not not this one. Okay. But yes, yes. Um, got a bit of way wrong in that. So if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's easily available everywhere it's in the public domain um, and finally I revisited Batman Ninja which is um, directed by Junpei Muzaki who also did um, Sturgeon Simpson's Sound and Fury for Netflix um, if you've not seen Batman Ninja it's essentially just a you know a samurai take on Batman as Batman along with his allies and many of his villains are transported back to feudal Japan by Gorilla Grodd um, and Batman finds himself donning the mantle of the ninja in order to defeat them it's a fun twist on the whole Batman mythos as you get to see um, the Joker as a emperor along with the likes of Two-Face and Poison Ivy and Gorilla Grodd uh, you get to see all the Robins, so that's Red Robin, Red Hood, Robin, Nightwing, all having their own take. And there's a really great twist on Catwoman as well in there as well. So it's, uh, it's a fun time, like all the DC Animated Universe ones. Um, I recommend checking it out. It was on Netflix, uh, but I think it will have been removed by the time this episode comes out. But uh, yeah, definitely go check that out. And many of the other Batwoman ones like... Um, the the adaptation of the Dark Knight Returns is also really great as well. So, the um, Gotham Got Gaslight one is very good. All those um, is it good? I've had very mixed reviews. But I, I was I really, excited by the I concept. Really, I really liked it. I mean, I love the original graphic novel. Um, it, it's um, almost more of a Catwoman sort of story. <laughs> um, she plays a huge role in it. Um, I, I I'm a big fan of all those um DC animated universe stuff. Um, I know there's quite a lot of deep diving you can do and say which ones are canon and which ones aren't canon, and but I've I've just enjoyed every single one that I've um I've watched, uh, but I haven't seen Batman Ninja, <laughs> so I must sort that out. That's the second time we talked about it, and I must um. It's know, yeah. Close, I mean, two it's... of my favourite things, Batman and Ninjas. Well, how can it be wrong? It's it's, it's suitably nuts. Um, in the fact that you have like scenes where. The, the villains all form their own like battle towers so it's all very sort of like steampunk that they all form like Voltron style into this one big robot um, yeah. 
But you have, as I said, at the same time you have fun twists, like you have a sumo version of Bane, who just randomly appears in this, and it just con it just constantly finds a way to have fun with the material. The animation is absolutely stunning throughout, and you know it's just a fun film to lose yourself in for a few hours. Although it does feel at times that you know this could have been like a series that they've just really condensed down into this uh, this one feature. So perhaps it was a missed opportunity in that respect. But no, definitely um, another great entry into their catalogue. Uh, and that's it. That's it for myself this uh, this episode. We've covered we've covered a lot, haven't we? <laughs> we've we've really jumped around the map on uh, on this one. So. Oh. We're going to take a quick break now, unless there's anything else you want to discuss, Stephen. I think that's more than enough for our listeners this month. Um, and grab ourselves a cup of tea as we fire up the projector for tonight's double feature, as we check out The Invisible Man Appears, and The Invisible Man Appears versus The Human Fly. Alright guys, so we need to record our top three reasons why you should listen to French Toast Sunday podcast. Number three should definitely be our diverse opinions. Number two should probably be our top three lists that we do every week. No, it's gotta it's gotta be Mark Wahlberg. What about Gwyneth Paltrow's head? It's gotta be fighting the sadness in the swamp of sadness. Full frontal. Stories about being lost at sea. Brendan Fraser being underground. Helen Mirren's boobs. Baltimore accents as heard in the wire. Crepes? Character studies. Wait, 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 guys. What about movies? No. Tree rape. Hmm. Tree rape? Yeah, I like tree rape. Tune in every Friday for a new episode of French Toast Sunday podcast brought to you by us at FrenchToastSunday.com. Clothing made out of Burger King wrappers. <laughs> Tonight we are looking at not one but two films as we're looking at The Invisible Man Appears and The Invisible Man Appears versus The Human Fly. Um, the Invisible Man Appears uh, was released in 1949, directed by Nobu uh, Dachi. One of two films he directed, the other being Claw Claws of Iron, which is kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde style film. Uh, this one's really sort of most noteworthy for being an early film from... Uh, uh, Isha Titsubura, who would obviously go on to be, you know, the legendary special effects man behind the Godzilla movies over at Toho. But uh, this film is uh, one of two Invisible Man movies put out by uh, Dehai. Gamera people. Yes. <laughs> so, Steven's studio of choice. It, 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 it is, because there is another Invisible Man film put out by Toho in between these two. <laughs> obviously, these... um. The Invisible Man is a is an attractive uh, character, isn't he, for, for for special effects films, especially in the early days. Well, this is the thing I didn't realise that there were so many Invisible Man movies until I watched Kim Newman's sort of breakdown of the Invisible Man genre. That's the only special feature you get with this disc, and you can watch it on Arrow Player as well, which uh, includes the special features as well. So Kim Newman, I mean, is obviously fascinating whatever he's talking about, and he's really interested in his breakdown of the genre. But this, um, both the films we're discussing tonight, have only recently become available. They were sort of 
never really sort of been shown outside of Japan until recently. So yeah, I mean, this is like one of the first examples of the the special effects film, and obviously released about 10 years after HD World's death so unfortunately never got to see the sort of like lasting legacy of his creation and when we think of the Invisible Man we obviously think of you know the classic Universal Monster and we don't really think about any of the other films which followed I mean it was the two Universal Horror Monsters movies I want to say for the Invisible Man you had the Invisible Man and I think it was Invisible Man Returns yeah the Cloud Rains ones right yeah yeah that's right um, and here we obviously get the Japan's twist on things with two films which, despite the titles, are not related in any way whatsoever to each other. No. Uh, but... <laughs> but, you know, that's not. The, the, the first film in, in particular is pretty much considered Japan's first um, tokusatsu film, isn't it? Yes, first that's special right. effects film. Um, uh, so this is, you know, this is predating Godzilla by a number of years. Um, I think they. Do I think there's another one very quickly follows it, another sort of space aliens one, but yeah, this is this is this, is, and, and you know, it's it's 20 years after Hollywood did it, <laughs> and, but it's um, yeah, it, it, it's important because obviously Tokusatsu is going to lead to all kinds of things which eventually will end up with um, you know, that that whole special effects TV show. That, that is um, a huge part of, of Japanese culture. This is where it all began, kids. This is where your Power Rangers came from. <laughs> well, as we open here, we're told that there is no good or evil in science, but it can be used for good or evil purposes. It pretty much sets the uh, standard, pretty much sets the stage for what follows here. As the film itself, it follows a. Um, a, a some jewel thieves that are interested in obtaining the visibility formula uh, invented by Professor Nakatsu as they want to acquire a diamond necklace called the Tears of Amor, which is really the main focus of this first film is just them trying to get hold of this necklace as it's constantly either stolen away from these thieves or they oh, they, they just um, have a missed opportunity so it's a kind of a unique twist on the Invisible Man sort of premise really because normally when we look at the invisible man the focus is just on the invisible man and often how the side effect of invisibility is either sort of like insanity or megalomania and uh, certainly in the case of this it's just increased rage um, well yeah it's um so yeah the, 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 this film doesn't really go to you know it does it does make them angry and i guess that's a, that's a mania of sorts doesn't it and um it's just it is a bit disappointing. I mean, there's there's sort of two things, two other, as well as somebody turning invisible, and all the all the camera tricks that are available because of that. There's, there's sort of two things that come out of it. One is is that how come everybody that turns invisible wants to hang, you know, enjoys the fact that hey, I'm naked here. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's always a scene like that, and there will be in the second film as well. But um, and I, I watched League of Extraordinary Gentlemen the other day. <laughs> I should be sent to hell for. But oh that, no, that, that's that a, does, not a bad that, movie at all. That does the same the same trick there. But um, but the other thing is, this is a film about people who are trying to steal a diamond necklace. Um, one of the great, you know, th- there are two great fundamental superpowers that people wish they had. One is maybe being able to fly, and the other is being invisible. And okay. I have to say, if I got made invisible. 
just stealing a necklace would not be the limits of my ambition. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> It's just, and they're shit at it. They are so poor at robbery, even with an invisible man. Um, it's it's remarkable. It's like the invisible man's kind of aspect of it is barely needed. But yes, it's got um, it's got it's got multiple things going on. To be fair, and yeah, and, the, and of course, there's a who done it. Who who is the invisible man? Which one of our characters is invisible now? Yeah, because um, obviously we've got the scheming drug company president, uh, Kwabe, here played by uh, Shokatsu Shugeriyama, who is so enamoured with this um, this necklace that we see it like flash up. He has this vision in front of him as soon as he sees it, and it just becomes this source of much obsession to himself. But um, our Dr. Nakatsu's got uh, two young scientists that he's pissing against each other not only on a professional level but also putting up oh, his own daughter god. god this man's reprehensible what well, two reasons he's <laughs> reprehensible main reason is he's basically offering his daughter to the one who can solve the problem yeah. of invisibility first right knowing full well one of them's going up the wrong alley completely i mean he pretty much says that's a stupid like, paint oh what yeah he wants to make a really black paint on, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's right Ev- everyone everyone knows that's stupid so this isn't even a fair battle but not only that he's already invented invisibility and he's keeping <laughs> it a secret from them <laughs> it's like what a reprehensible character and um and, and throughout the film the daughter's sort of going well you know i did like him and i really like him and i thought it was like, oh yeah but i like you really and this is like no there's no part of this i know I know it comes from a world, you know, that isn't, you know, marrying for love is a very fairly recent innovation. Yeah. In human history, and quite often marriages really were, you know, you had a daughter to marry them off to, to mix families together, and you know, and, and to get social status out of it. You know, whether that's right or wrong, that that's how it was. But setting it up as a prize, I know. I mean, you've got that work, aspect to it, but at the same time, is... she's very much interested in these two. These two scientists. So she's as oh, bad yeah. as she, her father in the fact that she's it. happy to still to pit <laughs> them against each other as well. Um Oh yeah, yeah. Oh no, it's it's, it's fair, fair, fair in this one. But yes, I, I do think though yeah, the worst thing is that he's already <laughs> discovered it. <laughs> oh dear. There's a nice bit of work there actually, you know, when um when he goes and gets it out of yeah. his hidden safe. And the um and the evil, the evil chemical company man sees him do it in a mirror. Sees him. Over. That's that's really well filmed for 1949. I thought I thought that was quite, you know, for, for a film about invisibility and something where you're not getting a reflection. It uses sort of reflection on top of reflection. So that's quite. It's, you know, it's 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 not um. It's maybe the first special effects film, but it's not without some oh, skill. No, I certainly appreciate the. You know the approach that they took to the Invisible Man plot here, in the idea that it's it's going to be used as part of this heist um, that they're planning to to get the, the to get these diamonds. And I think that along the way it has some interesting twists. We get a lot of throwbacks to the original Universal one, uh, such as the scene where he, where our Invisible Man goes into the jewelry store. And nobody sort of questions the fact that, you know, this guy's turned up, like, fully in bandages with sunglasses. And it's like, oh, that's just perfectly normal. And then, obviously, he does that 
big reveal. Yeah, you can intimidate someone by taking your clothes off is always an interesting approach. (laughs) None of that bit of it really made a lot of sense to me. But uh, I don't know. Maybe I was just like really charmed by the effects because the invincibility effects are pretty fun. They're very quaint in places, but they are still a lot of fun. Yeah, they are. They they are pretty well done. It's just, it's just, it's the, the the problem with this film is not the effects or the or the acting or anything or the pacing. The problem with this film is the application of you've got an invisible man thief and he doesn't. He's just useless at it. And even I also love the fact that there's a a would be thief that even disguises himself as the invisible man despite not being invisible because it's a very easy sort of outfit to replicate. It's kind of like Dark Man. It is like Dark Man, but yeah. cleaner. And the actual story itself, I think, is really so good. And the fact that this student who's willingly sort of turned himself into Invisible Man to go along with this this plot to uh, rescue his his mentor, um, who, as you said already, he, mm. he, I, I don't think does he ever filled in the fact that his mentor had created the invisibility formula ahead of time. It's never, it's never really played back again. No, <laughs> I didn't really mind because I was, I really enjoyed, as I said, the setup for this one and how it sort of turns along, and the fact that it's not the guy that you think it's going to be that uh, ends up being the Invisible Man out of these two, because you obviously got the one, you got the traditional sort of good-looking one, and then you got the slightly more rough around the edges uh, option for her to go for so it's kind of surprising that mm. they went the way they did with it and to see him find out that she's always been interested in this other guy instead of him while he not knowing he's in the room and then for him to like flip out and apparently just throw himself through a window rather than use the door like a normal person um, I think that's the problem with the Invisible Man thing. You've got to have all these big grandstand sort of moments. You to like knock a chair over and and like constantly show like these sort of like special effects moments are in the film. So in fact, you've always got to like throw yourself through a window or like smash something. Well, there isn't. There's no ability to add any subtle. You know, we talk these days in in this online world that we live in, Elwood, that you know people can't get the subtleties. From from facial recognition and stuff like that, yeah. you know, when you're talking to someone, and sometimes you misunderstand things because we're typing it and we're not saying it. Um, well, yeah, imagine if you're invisible and you could, all you can do are grand gestures that involve flinging things around the place or yourself through windows or through doors or something like that because yeah. no one's going to know otherwise. You levitate a cat or something <laughs> like that. That's, yeah, that's, that's one of the more jankier do. shots here. But we do also get the two required um, shots though in every Invisible Man movie, which is one to show the Invisible Man eating a banana and the other to have him smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Both of which are uh, yeah. present and accounted for here. I, I don't know why the banana. Yeah. <laughs> Is it, you could surely you could do the same with like an apple. I guess it's because a banana is so soft; it's easy to <laughs> use a wire to cut it to make it look like it's being eaten. I don't know. I mean, it's not. Yeah, yeah. I, I have, I have no idea. But it's yeah. There's not, there's not a lot of originality going on in certainly in this first film. Um, but it's it's perfectly fine. And important. 
It's, but it's more important than it is good, I think. It's yeah, I mean... Fine. However, there is a really important thing about it, but let's keep talking about the film, but before we move on to the next one, there is a there's a key person in this film that, that that's really important to Japanese cinema. Okay. Well, there's two of them, actually. Well, you've yeah, already I mean, mentioned obviously, the uh, special effect person from... Tokusatsu, I mean, obviously being <laughs> um, the, the Godzilla fan that I am, I mean, it would be... A, you know, a crime not to obviously mention his involvement in there. I mean, it's very early in his career, so don't, please don't expect going to this expecting like jaw dropping effects here. I mean, this is just like a, a very early project for him, especially considering what he would go on to create, especially um, for the films he did with Toho and, you know, most notably within the Godzilla series of films. I mean, he is one of like the Godzilla. Fathers. He's one of the five, um, five along with like Isha Hoda, um, just these these key figures who sort of made Godzilla what he was. You know, and not a gorilla whale as was originally proposed. Mm. <laughs> Indeed, I I forgot, and I I just remembered I watched Kong versus Godzilla, but we'll save that for. Well, you paid episode, the fifteen quid for that. Um, <laughs> I might have, might have done. <laughs> this dude might not be here on the next don't episode. Get me on that, but... <laughs> but we'll talk. We'll talk about it's that like, next episode. I think. Stephen, you um, wouldn't yeah, like. Him, you but, you but, wouldn't but... like steal a car, would you? You know, you wouldn't shoot a policeman, <laughs> would you? You wouldn't like then take a dump in his hat and then send it to his family. I know you're not that sort of mice. Well, I might. I'm, I might if I was an invisible man. It's <laughs> <laughs> like the worst pop plan. <laughs> oh. oh, God. Right. Any, anyway, the other person in this film who's important um, is the actress who plays Ryuko Mizuki. Um, she, she's the sort of. I think she she another. I can't remember her relationship to anybody, um, but got a really sort of stylish woman in the crazy, not crazy, but really sort of who's to be dressed by a better tailor than everybody else. Um, so that's um, what's her name again? Uh, Takiko Mitsuno. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah. Um, so she goes on. So she's only she acts. Yeah, she's a bit of a style icon in this film. But she goes on to become basically the first female film producer in Japan. And um, her work at Nikatsu um, is very much aligned with that that studio sort of golden age. Um, and she's a hugely important person in in sort of female rights and female succeeding in the workplace um in uh, she was behind some labor movement um political things um yeah she's she's a she's a, she's a big deal um i don't think she's in more than a handful of films which is interesting because we were talking yeah. about anna marie wong earlier and there's a certain similarity in in in, in, the, in the look that's going on here um but yeah, just literally a, hand, yeah, a she handful did, of films. She did uh, five films. I mean, at... she was also in the Happy Dancers. But certainly, as a, a producer, she's certainly well, more, well, uh, more well known. I mean, she also did like um, Shinsen Suzuki's Branded to Kill. She was the producer on that, which is also a really phenomenal mm. film. Yeah, so she's she's a it's, it's a bit like I, don't, I can't I can't think of an equivalent, but it's like. Um, it's like um, it's like watching um, 
Uh, what's that film? Roberto Rodriguez film with George Clooney. Dust of Dawn. Um, it's like from watching Dust of Dawn and saying, oh, and by the way, the other character, Quentin Tarantino, he made a couple <laughs> of films. <laughs> he was a film director himself. You may have heard of some of the stuff he's done. Um, it's, 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 yeah, it's a bit like finding someone like that in it. It's, um, but really, really interesting because, you know, because, because she's female, um, you know, the Japanese patriarchal society, we don't get many stories like that. And then I was reading up on her and finding out some crazy stuff about her nephew who got accused of murdering his wife. And then it turned out he might not have been her nephew. He might have been her son and oh, <laughs> some crazy stuff. But uh, we'll talk about that another time. But yes, so I just had to bring her up as well because she, she's no. important to this film. Um, I think this is, out of the two films, this is definitely the stronger one. There's a real sort of noir style to it, which I think is great. And also the fact that the cinematography really adds to what could just been a really sort of dialogue-heavy sort of movie and just sort of really focuses on fancy effects. So the fact that we've got a, that sort of noir element to it, we've got a bit of a crime caper in there as well, um, as well as sort of the usual sort of set pieces, I think it's altogether it really sort of comes together and makes for a really sort of fun time. So I think I think it's a better film. I tend to disagree with you, and I think the other one's more fun. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but we'll talk about that in a moment, I imagine. Yeah. Um, anything else on Invisible Man Appears? Do you want to? No, no. It's it's a it, it's a film of import. Um, it's really cool that Arrow have made it available. I mean, neither of us even knew this these films existed until until a few weeks ago. Um, and and and. You know, as, as film historians as well as film lovers, you know, this, it's really good to be able to get decent copies. And, and Arrow haven't gone crazy and spent fortunes on this and got them all f- super restored. They look great, but they are from, I think they're from exhibition prints, aren't they? I believe so. so. They're, they're, I mean, there's a couple. They're of... a bit rough. They're a bit rough around the edges, and there's some weird stuff sometimes when the camera pans round. But it's it, it's quite. It's quite nice that they're kept as they were. I think. Oh yeah, it's it's they're being they're, these prints are certainly being cleaned up, but at the same time, there is a couple of scenes of some blurriness in there, and also when we have like the big special effect shots, um, it also feels like you're watching something spliced from a different film reel. Mm. So it's a little bit jarring, but overall, I mean, it's just a really nice print and definitely one worth adding to your collection if you're obviously a an Invisible Man fan. Um, but at the same time, you can watch it on Arrow Player as well, which is yep. uh, if you're like myself and and you know don't have loads of rooms for films, and like Mister Moneybucks over there who went and bought this DVD set. Well, I did, but I, I bought it to support a friend <laughs> who has has written one of the articles in the um in the uh, in the in, in that, that comes the package. Uh, is, the, the, the disappointment for me in the package as a whole is yes, you've got two films in here, and you've got a nice little booklet. So Haley Scanlon, who's done some work with us on um, uh, Eastern Kicks, and just sort of very, just very all round expert on Japanese cinema. So it's lovely to see her voice on here as opposed to the normal. The normal names that you see on these Arrow um, collections, you know, 
Well, there's a couple of Keith Allison does a bit and Tom Vincent as well. So it's nice to see some different names in general. However, the only real special extra bit is, um, like you said, the, the bit with Kim Newman, which, you know, it's always good to see Kim Newman talk about anything. But, uh, yeah, it felt a bit a bit light on the extras front for a um, for, for an Arrow disc. But they can be like that sometimes. They can either be packed or they can be a bit bare bones. But at least we didn't get any... Think from Tony Rains, because that would have put me off forever. <laughs> I just want them to. Um, uh, I just want them to get a hold of Alex Cox and just have him provide introductions to things. Well, wouldn't that be fantastic? <laughs> the problem with Alex Cox doing introductions to things, he openly tells you he dislikes the film. Like Diva, he openly said he openly hates that he was like very open in his dislike for that film by like one or two shots. So yeah. you could be essentially buying a film where he's like, this film isn't very good. <laughs> you just you just wouldn't put him on that one. You just put someone else on that one. But you just yeah you you, you, should, you should. But it would be nice. There, there is a Arrow have this sort of kind of nice movie drone kind of feel to some of their releases outside of the Asian cinema stuff they do they do some fantastic releases of some fantastic films that a lot of them were on movie drone and a lot of them would be on it if movie drone still existed today so yeah I, I like that idea I'm not going to suggest the alternative because I know that will just trigger you mate I'm not going to say the other presenter of movie dreams name <laughs> i know that you and you and david brooke are fans of him so you can I, say I, who I, he is so i don't yeah I, I i i i i enjoyed mark cousins movie dreams as much as i enjoyed alex cox's movie dreams but there is a certain you you're right um <laughs> there's a certain approach that <laughs> that he takes to to um his introductions compared to the approach that alex cox takes to them yes um, they're very very different characters very different filmmakers um very different voices um but yeah i i, I like a bit of mark cousins but let's not let's not go because i know this will trigger you <laughs> no 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 i've been taking taking those pills now <laughs> keeps me balanced so, Owen, there's a second film on this disc. Um, the Invisible Man versus the Human Fly. What's that about? <laughs> um, right, this is obviously released several years after, eight years to be precise, um, after after them, because apparently they went in a rush to sort of capitalise on the Invisible Man sort of franchise. No, I guess, I guess, I guess, I guess anyone can make an Invisible Man film. Because, um, like I say, Toho have made one in between these two years. I can't remember what it's called. Um, it's called The Invisible Avenger. That's just another version of um, The Invisible Man that's made in, not, um, I was going to say 1897. <laughs> that's when the original book was made. 1954. So so, it's go, so, so it starts off a, a day, goes to Toho, comes back to day again. So doesn't seem to be any licensing issues like there were with Kong and Godzilla. No, and uh, much like the first film, they've taken another unique approach here. So we have a locked room mystery in which a, a series of mysterious crimes are being committed by a seemingly invisible killer. Um, as well, you when you get into this, you think, oh, we're going to rejoin up with our original team. But nope, it's a completely different team who have somehow also invented invisibility. In a completely different way. 
yeah, there's there's nothing there's nothing connecting these films at all. The only connection they've got they're on the same DVD disc and they're by the same studio. There's no shared actors, no shared story, no nothing, which was a shame. Yeah. <laughs> well, not really because how the first one ends, I suppose. There's no way they can go with it. But <laughs> it would be a little tricky. Um, also, from when we compare like the science setup of the first film, which is just a basic sort of lab setup, and here we have the funky greenhouse that um, this team of scientists operate out with bubbling liquid and weird space consoles and steel rails. You know, there's a real emphasis on the fact there is science afoot in this lab. And this this film this film that 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 everything you've described it's so fifties science whereas the other film felt like forties science I know that's saying the obvious but there is something here whereas you know the first film sort of talks about oh there's no evil in science there's only evil in people this one this one's got full on laser beams and bubbling beakers and bunsen burners and 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 oscilloscopes and strange noises this is yeah this is this is 50 science fiction which is full of hope i think i never figured out yeah. what an oscilloscope was supposed to actually be used for other than <laughs> making weird things appear well so let's work out the frequency of electrical signals <laughs> well that told me <laughs> there you go i have two <laughs> but that's, that's, that's another story altogether but um yeah, but this yeah this is from a, this is from this is from the age of the atom now we're in yeah this is this is it, this is science and Japan remember you know is rebuilding its industry after the Second World War and science is very much a part of Japan's resurrection as a as as part of the of the rest of the human race really so yeah. It's, it's, it's all very exciting. I mean, I wouldn't trust them with a barge pole if this is how they go about their scientific <laughs> explorations. But uh, yeah, this is how the compact disc was invented. I just tried it on myself. <laughs> <laughs> so with this one, uh, we follow p- the police chief uh, Waka Bayashi, here played by uh, Yoshiro Ketahara who's a really great charismatic lead. And I think that the fact this is uh, like a a police mystery is another fun take on take on this. Um, at the same time, on the science side of things, that we've now got an invisibility ray that we're told will fold down to the size of a suitcase, which it only gets only really sort of plays into the fact that uh, it's going to need to be moved for the ending. Um, they've also created a ray that will enable you to become uninvisible because the catch, obviously, being that once you're made invisible, that you can't not be invisible so they've actually come up with a ray that uh, will make you visible again the downside being that it's also a cancer gun <laughs> yes. which i was so waiting to come into it but nope other than killing a rabbit it does nothing at all to rest this movie um, oh that's a pretty that's a pretty sick moment though isn't it? when that rabbit like they make a rabbit invisible and they make it appear again then it sort of dies in front of you in quite a violent way yeah overtaken by you know he's like deadpool overtake you know when deadpool loses all his powers in deadpool 2 and all the cancers attack him it's like that but he's fast forward <laughs> it's, yeah it's pretty pretty grim i think and that's very good acting by the rabbit or they killed the rabbit <laughs> i'm saying that they had lunch <laughs> yeah i think you're right i don't think you'd eat one of those rabbits but um yes yeah we, so there's a lot of um yeah, there's a lot of 
things that just happen for the plot's sake, aren't they? <laughs> this, they don't really get backed up with the story. Uh, this one's written by uh, Heiji, uh, Heijimi Takawe, who is um, contributed to a number of great uh, films to... to, to yeah. contributed um, a number of films to cult cinema over the years a lot of pop samurai movies in there he did uh, Return of the Street Fighter with Sonny Chiba he did uh, Shoni no Mamba uh, Shinobi no Mono uh, 1 and 2 and this is as I said he did a bunch of the sort of pop samurai movies and ninja movies it was sort of like his main sort of bread and butter so this is kind of like a a rare you know, move away from those sorts of movies. And here he really sort of makes a f- film which is very sort of in tune with the time. So it's a lot sexier than the first film. As we see uh, with the antics that we see at Club Asia. Ooh. Oh, my word. Yes. Ooh. So, yeah. <laughs> the world the world, oh, the world, has changed a lot in, 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 in the sort of the eight years since The Invisible Man first appeared, if you excuse the... Um, film title pun um because yeah we have we have sexy ladies in bikini outfits well it's it's not even it could be and, classed and as that and and, and, and less <laughs> and 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 we have yeah we have moments later on where little men are running around with women's <laughs> body and um yeah i i it's, it's like you a lot of films at this time had to have some kind of go-go club or something in, didn't they? <laughs> well, I don't. It, it, it's a lot fruitier than I was than than I was expecting. Let's put it that way. Yeah, because we have a uh, Junko Kano who plays a club dancer slash hostess and spends a great deal of the film wearing very little on her top half, which I was very surprised to see, consider, especially considering you know Japanese censorship being what it is. Um, this leads very little to the imagination, to say the least. So the fact that we have our human fly later on doing running up the running up her her body as she's um, hiding backstage, I think was just a one of the highlights of this film. Yeah, I, 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 I yeah, it's probably why I enjoyed it more. <laughs> but but, it, but it, it's it's surprisingly risque for a film from the fifties. You know, Japan, one thing, but just period, right? I mean, I don't remember a lot of this um, boobage going on in many other films of this well, period. Not, not this period, no. I mean, you certainly, when you look at this, it's not of like the late 60s to the 70s that we saw, mm. saw more more flesh on shows. So this is a very surprise, especially for the era of film, to see such um, such risque scenes. Mm. Um and it's it's really bizarre the fact that they're sort of included. I mean, obviously, there's this whole subplot where uh, the human fly is sort of very obsessed with the singer, and he keeps targeting people who show any interest in her at all. Um, the actual human fly is it may be a little disappointing, depending on what you expect from a human fly. It's not like you know, Brundle. Save me! I was like, so no. expecting that, like a big spider to be like the payoff. Yeah. Here. So, so it's not the human fly. So at this this time, I guess the human fly would have been the Vincent Price movie, wouldn't it? Where was it Vincent Price? I can't remember. But about yeah, the fly. Where, where a man has where a man has got spliced together with a fly later, beautifully made by Cronenberg in, yeah. in the fly. But um, no, this is just a man who can shrink. He's kind of like Amman. 
He is like Ant-Man. Um, He's just like Ant-Man. And he can mysteriously fly, which is never really properly explained. It's just the fact that the movie logic being that because he's really small, he can also fly. Um, but yeah, it does create a number of really sort of charming little, you know, um, incredible shrinking man style moments where you sort of sneak around the city. And as we said, he's where he's running along the body of um, of our, our club dancer. Um, the only downside is that how, you know, how you combine an invisible man and the human fly in the same movie. And it's a very uneasy blend, to say the least, as... The Invisible Man sort of subplot really has offers nothing to the film other than sort of like a selling point for the film. Um, it, you, you're, you're so right, right? If this film was just called The Human Fly and it had none of the Invisible Man shit, nobody eating bananas or whatever, uh, or, 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 or any of that, um, and it was just about a, a man who could shrink down and kill people and, and disappear, yeah, I think that would have made the film... Just as, you know, would not have harmed the film at all to lose the Invisible Man stuff. And that just, that just slows it down, really. And it's also a really great premise. I mean, obviously, the reason that the people being targeted by the human fly, um, I think it really ties in. And you've also got those post World War Two themes in there as well, um, where this entertainment industry is basically using this. Um, Using these these capsules that enable the people to shrink down to the size of insects to take revenge on the people he feels wronged him in the war. Uh, so, wow, it's really fascinating, actually, isn't it? Because there's this whole, you know, we often talk about how the Japanese people don't talk about their own war crimes. I mean, I think every nation's the same. We could have a long talk about the things the British have done in India and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, we were as bad, but there's this whole thing you know, where we often talk about you know Nazis, what Nazis might have done in concentration camps, but the Japanese did a whole bunch of terrible stuff. That's, that's yeah, I know Zoe would come and tell us all about films she's watched. <laughs> that's, you know, this film is is only what ten years after the war, and is addressing medical experiments going on on islands during the war. Um, so again, not only boobage, but quite unexpected political commentary yeah um i have to say that when it comes to the the human fly he has many of the uh sort of characteristics of the original invisible man um, yeah. <laughs> he also has one of the stupidest threats ever where he says if you try to trace his call i shrink to the size of a bug which i guess really showed them <laughs> but we get a, yeah, we get okay. a, we get a really spectacular um, exploding railway sequence as well, mm. which is a fun throwback to the original film. As yep. in, the original Invisible Man, not original. Invisible yep. Man appears. Um, which, I, I mean, I always, I'm always for like exploding miniatures and dummy falls, and this film gives us both, so it's got that going for it as well. But no, I... There's, men, there's a couple of like nagging questions, like the fact that we have several people... Uh, of the science side who are able who, who turn themselves invisible and yet are mysteriously able to make themselves visible again. Oh well, yeah. Well, the whole the whole film's climax um, rests on the fact a character we hadn't even considered before is now an invisible person. Yep. And seems to be able to make themselves visible and invisible mm. at will. 
What happened to the cancer? Well, I As thought I was like, well, <laughs> what's the point of us creating this invention to make people visible again when you can essentially just make yourself visible? And I know there's like this. The, one of the characters um, says that you know he has to keep his skin covered because the UV light keeps making mm. is what makes you visible. Um, if you have like long exposure to light, it and that's why you've got to constantly bandage yourself up to make yourself invisible. Um, but no, the actual science side just really sort of falls apart here, and well, like, it just doesn't doesn't. No, but even, even what you've described is is not what they said earlier. <laughs> You're stuck being invisible. Let's use this ray, which will kill you. Except you won't, because the UV light will make you visible again. But don't worry about that. By the end of the film, we'll have somebody who can make... It's like the Sue Storm of Japan. Oh, yeah. Let's, <laughs> let's not forget the, the press gathering of the press at the end, where you know we, our chief, chief uh, of police is there giving the statement, saying, you know, we defeated the human fly who's been laying siege to the city. So much the fact that they wheel out these like World War Two sort of like propaganda style posters like warning everyone to be aware of the human fly. Uh, this tiny little man has got everyone very afraid. And at the end it's sort of like, oh you can see her over there. She's just undressing. And then you see like this cameraman quickly like setting up his lens. It's sort of like everyone this film's just such a pervert. Yeah, this this film is quite seedy, isn't it? <laughs> In a in a sort of, I'd like to say a charming way, but the more we talk about it, mate, the less charming it appears, and the more of a freaking perv fest it has to be. Yeah, I mean, my main issue with the film is the last half hour of this just really drags, um, but and the end, the end finale is just even more stupid, where our villain steals the ray and flies off in his helicopter, only for the two heroes to like look and go. Oh, guess we got foiled by him and his superior smarts. Oh, wait a minute, he's coming back. <laughs> I, I noticed the fact that he's threatening the city with this bomb, and he's sort of like, oh, the bomb is on Christmas Island. And it's all like, why did you leave it on Christmas Island? <laughs> yeah. All you had to it's, say is um... there's no bomb at all. <laughs> you, um, you, uh,. You, you were you were extolling the virtues of the screenwriter earlier, but this isn't one of his stronger pieces. I, I didn't say he was like <laughs> he, he he wrote he wrote a lot of films that you know this sort of malarkey often carry because of the style of film is this it doesn't and it's a shame really because it's a really fun locked room mystery in the sort of like classical sort of sense of it, but the fact that we're working in the Invisible Man antics into it. And there's like, even if you just pit those two superpowers against each other, they make no sense whatsoever. It's like, how is an invisible man going to have any sort of advantage over someone who can make themselves really small? Um, but, but, but that, that's again, the whole versus element of this is just pointless. Um, it, it just, there never is really uh, no any kind of conflict here. It's um, silly. Um but, yes, it's more like an invisible somebody else versus the mastermind behind the human fly. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's enjoyable hokum, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. 
It's uh, as I said, it was uh, it's certainly an experience, and it's fun to obviously look at this take on the Invisible Man mythos. And I appreciate the fact that they in both films they do something different. It's not just the classic sort of horror movie setup. Um, I think it's that's what's the one of the big appeals here is the fact you get to see them do something different with it, kind of like a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen did. Um, just to move away from just doing the horror element, I think it's just a real. It's a good move for the film, even though it the inclusion of the Invisible Man in the second one doesn't make a huge amount of sense. But obviously, I think you enjoyed the first film more. I enjoyed the second film more. That probably talks more about me than it does about you. <laughs> but they're 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 unessential. I'm glad I've seen them. Um, will Will I ever go back to the DVD again, Blu-ray again? Mm, don't know. Don't 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 think so. Unless um, there's a good reason to do so. But it's just nice that they exist. And it's nice that they still exist in such a way. You know, we can watch them some 80, oh, definitely. years later. I really appreciate the fact that Arrow have, have brought these films finally over. I mean, this is a curiosity piece. They're absolutely fascinating films. And it's great to see Arrow picking up titles like this. And it's like they've got... Um, of, I think it's of gods, dolls and gods. Oh, um, toys. Yeah. Um, oh, the fifty. Oh, that's a brilliant film. Is are they are they putting that out? Yeah, they're putting that out. <gasps> that's oh, out well, of the next of release. Oh my gosh, that's a fantastic film. Um, we we must talk about that on this show. Cool. No, I think I think that's I think I'm done, mate. So, uh, yeah, both, as we said already, uh, several times already, you can check out both these films, both on Arrow Player or they are available um, on DVD and Blu-ray. So you can go check them out and add them to your collection. Um, but, no, as we were saying already, um, it's great to see Arrow picking up and picking up titles like this rather than just doing the usual sort of cool favourites. It's nice to see see them go tapping into some like these early sort of Japanese style B movie offerings, uh, so things like this, and it'd be nice to see things like the H Man come over as well. Or I, th- I thought I thought someone did bring the H Man over, didn't maybe. They? But but I think <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think they did because I I reviewed it somewhere. <laughs> but there is a whole. I think you know your, your point stands. Yes, um, there was an Ishira Honda double feature. H Man and Battle in Outer Space by it was Eureka. Who yeah, so who who else do stuff like this? But there's a whole bunch of films like this that aren't by Kurosawa. You know, from from this era that I just don't think um that don't don't get bogged on I no I don't know what the audience is, mate, whether it's just me and you. <laughs> you know, they, they, or David Brooks maybe, but um, you know, if, it, if they're only going to tell fifty of them or a hundred of them, um, it must be quite hard. But yes, love, love to see more of it, and maybe something they could just do more on the um, on the player rather than just producing physical media. I don't know. Well, um, that brings us to the end. Obviously, tonight's uh, show. Thank you as always for 
listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button wherever you happen to listen to us. And you can obviously follow us on Instagram and we're on Twitter. We're also on Facebook, which is obviously one of our big main hangouts. And we have a great group over there. We have uh, some fun conversations and we post not only announcements of our new episodes, but we also post uh, fun bits of news or... Um, tidbits and things uh, you can also check out our full archive episodes at asiansimmerfilmclub.wordpress.com which not only has our full archive episodes but we've got the dark side of Asian cinema over there we've got the word uh, we've got the movie vault uh, we've got the mixtape just a whole host of uh, great bonus material to enjoy as well as the show as well and uh, let's not forget you can also check out our chapter by chapter breakdown of the cult classic Battle Royale which uh, is available not only on this feed but also uh, by looking up battle royale as well um we are currently nearing the halfway point there so um hopefully you've been enjoying that and uh, certainly it's been a fun project to put together so um more of that to obviously come as we hone in on uh close on doing all 24 chapters of that film so but um steven it's your turn to obviously pick next what would you like to look at so I'm going to pick a film that we've both spoken about in passing before. I'm almost certain it's on our top 50, top 100 films. I think you may have brought it in and I, I gleefully agreed. Um, also, it's about time we went back to Thailand. I don't think we've done enough Thai films over the last 65 episodes if nothing else if we think we struggle with japanese names we really struggle with <laughs> with thai names um i'm going to suggest we talk about chocolate um directed by prakia pankow from 2008 starring the uh fantastic yanin uh i think that's how you say it um uh, it's just one of my, one of my favourite martial arts films, one of my favourite Thai films. Um, time, I think, to talk about it. Definitely, um, certainly one that's on our top our top films list, um, and one that followed in the wake of the likes of the Bodyguard and Tony Jaa's explosive debut with Ong Bak. <laughs> um, Chocolate's still a phenomenal movie, and one that I think kind of been kind of forgotten in many ways. So it'd be good to revisit it and. Especially because it's been a while since I saw it last, so I'm very excited to revisit that. But that's obviously coming up on our next episode. Um, again, thank you as always for listening. Thanks to my co-host Stephen. And uh, pleasure as always. Yep, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> got distracted there. Um, and um, yeah, we will be back next time to talk about chocolate. But until then, good night. Oh,
This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.